George Sands has not wanted to talk to us. We tried reaching out, calling several possible numbers, asking friends and his former lawyer to ask him to talk to us. He didn't want to talk. He doesn't believe there's any point in it, that we'd tell it wrong anyway. Maybe there's no way to tell it in a way that he'll think is fair. It's hard to know his story when he won't speak it. But our producer, Alexander Ritchie, finally made the right call to the right number. Oh. Hello, is this Mr. George Sands? Uh, this is Alexander Ritchie. Um, I'm a radio producer, and I'm working on a story about uh, the Birmingham Police Department. And uh, I was wondering if I could get a chance to talk to you. No, sir. sure. I don't give it. I don't give interviews. You don't give interviews? No. Would you be willing to just sit down and talk at some point? No. You wouldn't. Every time I've every time I've done that, I've been misquoted, and I'm not going to get involved in it. Well, what do you, like, I guess what, have you, you know, what has people gotten wrong about you? Uh, I'm going around calling it a murder. Calling it a murder? Yeah. Well, how do you feel about it? It wasn't a murder. I was doing my job. I'm sorry, but I, I just don't give interviews. He said that consistently over the years. A friend of Sands, a former officer named Jim Griffin, who believes Sands acted appropriately, reached out to him for us and asked if Sands would talk. Sands apparently had some bad experiences with the Birmingham News and the media in general. He wrote a response, and Jim sent it to me. You want to read it? Absolutely. Here you go. <clears throat> Jim, thank you for reporting the facts. Problem is, this is not what will come out of the news. It doesn't sell papers. After everything was said and done, the attorney for the news headed up a delegation that talked to my then-attorney, offering me several different sums of money to resign, along with other jobs and education to resign. I felt deeply that I would be letting down my brothers in blue, all of them, so I declined. That's when all of the political BS started. There were many other actions they took, like trying me on federal charges, which the feds declined. I have nothing to say to this guy except given the same situation and circumstances, I would shoot her again. I'm Roy S. Johnson. And I'm John Archibald. And this is Unjustifiable, not just the story of one black woman killed by police, but the story of how hundreds of so-called justifiable police shootings reached a breaking point when Officer George Sands shot and killed 20-year-old Benita Carter in Birmingham, Alabama in 1979. And how protest over her killing changed that city. He would shoot her again. That's quite a statement, John. It is. He said a lot of things in there that I frankly don't understand, but I'm sure that part is true. As we've seen from earlier episodes, shooting people, fleeing black people particularly, was common practice for most of, well, well, for most of America's existence. It wasn't just legal for cops to shoot fleeing felons. In most police departments, certainly Birmingham's, it was expected. 
by superiors and peers, by white citizens, by newspaper folks and politicians who played to white fear then as they do now. I guess what we know about Sands' position on the shooting comes from the statement he gave under questioning by internal affairs. You can barely call it questioning, though. It was not exactly the third degree. He was asked about working the plainclothes robbery and burglary detail he'd been on that week and about crime in the neighborhood where he shot and killed Benita Carter. Sergeant G.T. Grubbs asked the questions. He wanted to know about the ammunition Sands used to shoot her, standard-issue Remington 125-grain semi-jacket hollow point, and how he and Officer R.W. Hollingsworth pulled into the parking lot at Jerry's convenience store and watched the lady backing out of a parking space before he could go inside. Then the call went out, a 16A, robbery in progress, and they started to leave to back out of the parking lot. Then the address of the alarm came over the radio and Sands realized he was already on the scene. He was right there at Jerry's. They bailed out of the car just as the store manager ran out to warn them that a dangerous man was getting away in the green Buick Electra 225 and he had a shotgun. This is what he said in that interview. Okay, now, who pointed out the car to you as being the car? Ray Jenkins. Ray Jenkins, okay. And do you know do you know Ray Jenkins personally? Yes, sir. When you first pulled up there and saw the car that he indicated was involved in the shooting, how far was that car from you? Probably 40 feet, 30 or 40 feet. We were on the inside of the lot between the sidewalk and the gas pumps. It was just enough room for one car to get in there. And I believe you said that car had stopped at the time? When I saw it, it was stopped, completely stopped. Okay, uh, and I believe you said you approached the passenger side of the car. Yes, sir. And what did the car look like? It was a green Buick, deuce and a quarter. Okay, was it a light green or a dark green? It was a medium green. Exactly, at the best you can remember, what was the statement made to you by Jenkins in reference to that car? Okay, he told me, he said he is in the car said, be careful, he's hiding. He's got a shotgun. It may not have been in that order, but that's what he told me in essence. And why did you fire your weapon? Because I was under the impression I was told there was a man in the car with a shotgun. When he jumped up, I figured he was coming out with a shotgun. And what went through your mind the second before you shot? That he was coming out with a shotgun. So you're saying you were in fear for your life? That's right. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add to this statement? Only that you couldn't tell it was a woman or not. She had her hat pulled down way over her head. At what point in time did you learn that it was a woman in the car? After it was all over with. Sands had seen a lot by then. He was 32 years old, a former firefighter who joined the force eight years earlier. He would have been 24. He already had a reputation in Benita Carter's neighborhood, but he was not alone in that. Nathaniel Bagley was her friend. You know, there were all other incidents of police brutality where blacks didn't trust police, you know, and there were incidents where police would, you know, often come through neighborhoods and, and kind of um, do those things, police brutality in terms of stopping blacks for no reasons or giving them a hard time. And that happened quite often. This particular officer, you know, officer saying, you know, it had some situations, had some occurrences with blacks in the community, in our community, in, in, in this particular community. So, you know, it was a history. 
Sands was certainly no angel, and not just in Benita Carter's neighborhood. His personnel file tells all. Let's just take a look real quick. There are 14 complaints in the file from incidents that happened between 1973 and 1977. Seven involve use of force, and three involve missing money. Let's see. In 1973, a black man complained his pistol was taken from his car. The department ruled it unfounded. A year later, in 1974, another black man, Lewis Dunning, was arrested for public drunken disorderly. He said he was missing $100 when he got to jail. His allegation was not sustained by the department. Sustained, that's an official term. Two weeks after that, Keith Reed, a white man this time, was arrested for public drunk. He also claimed he was missing money when he got to jail. The department ruled that unfounded. I'm not sure the difference between unfounded and not sustained. So let's just say both mean the police found no merit in those complaints. That's three in a row, in a short time. No punishment. That's all the complaints on missing property. Let's look at the use of force involving Officer Sands. In December of 1974, James Robinette, a white guy, was arrested for DUI and said he was beaten by officers. A week after that, Ray Brown, a black man, was arrested for disorderly conduct. He said he was beaten too. The next year, a black man named Leroy Rumpf, arrested for burglary, said he was beaten by officers at City Hall. None of these cases were, you guessed it, sustained. Starting to seem like a pattern. Now here's one where Sands was punished. Well, sort of. Jack Webster McDaniel Jr., a black man, was chased by police after a minor traffic violation and said he was hit over the head with a pistol. He was arrested for failure to obey and reckless driving and not having a driver's license. The department gave Sands a written reprimand for failure to have a nightstick on duty. So they didn't mind him hitting the guy in the head, just wanted him to do it with his stick and not with his sidearm. In 1975, Willie Evans, a black man, said he was beaten by police at the scene, not sustained. Early the next year, Ricky Wayne Maxwell said he was beaten too, declared unfounded. In 1979, Benita Carter was shot. That's a lot. But he wasn't alone either. 347 complaints were filed across the whole department in the year before. 54 of them were excessive force. Most resulted in little or no punishment. But it's why people wanted him fired. Or more. Bagley certainly thought that. He had several complaints, and, you know, I, I, you know, he should have been reprimanded and possibly removed from the force. Yeah, the question is why he was even why was there he in the still, first place. Why was he there in the first place, and why was he still allowed to be there? Right. And why, you know, he, 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 he was not removed. I mean, he probably, you know, got paid. He stayed on the job with pay, and then I think lady took a leave, a, a sick leave of absence for whatever. You know, but the fact still remains. You know, I mean, I, I, just, I just think due diligence wasn't done. If, if, if you keep screwing up on your job so many times, they're going to reprimand you or they're going to fire you. That's the reality. That's real, that's real world today. Now, back then, because of forces or who they're related to or who they knew or because you were a good old boy club or whatever it was, that was a day at that particular time. And that sometimes that didn't always favor African-Americans. It never did. Never did. Mark Winnie was a fairly legendary reporter in these parts before heading off to Atlanta in the 80s, where he had a long career with the TV station WSB. He covered the Benita Carter case for the Birmingham News as a young man. He got a rare interview with Sands in 1980, eight months after the shooting. 
In that interview, Sands told Winnie he didn't understand why the shooting had become a racial issue because he had had no time to notice Benita Carter's race. It was never a racial issue, never was and never will be. I didn't think what race that person was. Race didn't cross my mind. Here's how that story began. Why don't you read it, Alexander? All right. George Sands has an ordinary face with two small eyes nearly lost and lots of cheek and chin, of which there's even more since he put on 20 pounds in the eight months he's been off the police force. The friend's Huffman office where Sands sat Monday night was ordinary, too, just a few chairs and a desk. Sands dressed simply, jeans and a golf shirt. Sands seemed to wish his life was simpler, that it seems to get more complicated day by day. Earlier Monday, Sands had thought for a while that complications might end. The court had just told Mayor Richard Arrington he could no longer keep Sands off the police force. The city filed for a stay of that court order, which draws the process out even longer. <laughs> no wonder he hates the press. Sands was thrilled to hear he was going back to work, even as administrative assistant to the deputy chief over the uniform division. He didn't know if he would ever get off desk duty, but was, at least, on the brink of returning to work. City Councilman Richard Arrington had wanted Sands off the force, certainly out of largely black parts of the city. Mayor Richard Arrington, elected, as we know, in 1979, amid the swift outrage over the killing of Benita Carter, really wanted him gone. Citing those complaints, the shooting, and a disturbing psychiatric evaluation that describes Sands as overly sensitive when challenged with issues of inadequacy. That evaluation said Sands was often moody and easily agitated. None of that is good, especially for a cop. But the police, the fraternal order of police, a powerful political force in Birmingham at the time, were very supportive of Sands. And as we heard in earlier episodes, Mayor David Van was very much caught between a rock and a hard place. He thought Sands was trouble, but he also believed a cop was poorly trained and the product of his environment, that Birmingham, since the tenure of Bull Connor himself and probably before, had taught its officers to be bold and aggressive and to protect themselves with rapid fire. Other officers told him, and he knew it to be true, that they would have done exactly the same thing. So they'd have shot her too, just so we're clear. From what we've seen about how easily police shootings were ruled justifiable over the generations, many most certainly would. Unjustifiable will return right after this. You cannot understand America without understanding the South. It's the fastest growing, youngest, and most diverse part of the country. And Southerners are changing the music we listen to, the movies we watch, the food we eat, and the stories we share. I'm John Hammontree, host of The Reckon Interview, and each week I sit down and talk with some of the South's most interesting thinkers and creators. We talk about how this place shaped them and how they're reshaping the South. So go ahead and subscribe to The Reckon Interview, available wherever you get your podcasts. Getting rid of Sands wasn't all that easy for Arrington. The cop's fate was embroiled in the courts and with the powerful county personnel board. Sands ultimately went back to work but was fired in 1984 for striking a superior who tried to break up a dispute between Sands and his ex-wife. He reportedly punched his wife, too, and appealed the ruling on the grounds that it was alcoholism and not him that caused it. But here's Arrington. You know, we, we never really got rid of, of Sands until it finally caught up with him with the domestic situation and with his wife uh, in public. And that's where I finally fired Sands because of that. 
but all other times, all these other problems we had, negative publicity, we didn't, we didn't fire Sands. He was protected by the system. He had a bad record as a police officer. He had a bad psychological evaluation. All of that. It was tough. The legal battles in this case dragged on into Arrington's second term, and so did the controversy. Alger, Buster Pickett, the guy who fired into Jerry's convenience store in the first place and asked Benita Carter to move his car, had been charged with assault. But when the case was brought before a grand jury, the body chose not to indict him. The district attorney, Earl Morgan, refused to bring him back before the grand jury, despite pressure to do it. He told reporters, Winnie specifically, that he had no new evidence, and it was his personal policy not to bring a man back before the grand jury unless new evidence was found. Bonita Carter's father, John Carter Sr., sued Sands in the city for $2 million. But in 1985, as the elder Carter neared death, the city settled the case for $75,000. That's right, $75,000. In a prepared statement then, Arrington said the shooting was difficult to justify, but acknowledged, in a way that sounded a lot like Van in 1979, that there was evidence from which reasonable persons could conclude that Officer Sands acted under circumstances as then presented to him in a logical and legally justifiable manner. That's the end of the quote. It was a messed up world in many ways, but I still can't help think Sands was less the problem than a symptom of a much bigger one, one that infected the entire police force. Or should I say, I don't see that removing Sands was the solution. This wasn't just a bad apple, it was a rotten orchard. Like the city's shooting policy, which, and Birmingham was not alone, not only allowed cops to shoot fleeing suspects, but expected them to. Though that made plenty of cops uneasy. You remember T.K. Thorne, the former cop who was a rookie during the Benita Carter shooting. She recalls that uneasiness. This is a story from that rookie year when she found herself with a veteran officer answering a burglary alarm at a home in Birmingham. He went around the front of the house and she took the rear. One day I was with an officer who I have a, have a lot of respect for, but we had a burglary alarm call and we pulled up in front of the house and he got out the passenger side and my job was to make sure somebody didn't run out the back and get away. So I went out back, and I, I had a very big gun. <laughs> I had a 357, although it only carried 38 shots in it. But actually, the bigger the gun, the easier it is to shoot because of the weight. But I've, I looked for cover, and the only thing I could find was this little bitty tree that was much skinnier than I was. And I was fairly skinny at the time. And I set up behind that tree with my gun pointed at the back door. I didn't know what was going to happen. An armed burglar could have come out the back. Uh, he could have seen me and shot at me. Uh, but another scenario was running through my mind. What if an unarmed person comes out the back and runs? It's my job to stop them. And I don't, you know, unless I put my gun back up and run, which at him... I, I, only had, I can only shoot him, and I would be expected to shoot him at that, that time back in, in the late 70s. Shooting a fleeing felon was completely legal and expected. And I remember asking myself, Are you, am I going to be able to shoot somebody that's just running unarmed? And I don't know what I would have done. 
the time. I hope I hope I would have done Plan B, which was to jam my gun back in my holster and run and try to catch him. But that would have made me vulnerable. Arrington made it a point of his first term to change the BPD shooting policy. The U.S. Supreme Court would later do the same in a case out of Tennessee that said police could not shoot suspects unless there was a serious threat of harm to the officer or others. Birmingham under Arrington did it first, in the wake of the Benita Carter shooting. Here's Arrington again. Uh, in the face of some opposition, we changed the fleeing felon shooting policy here before the, before the Supreme Court ever ruled on that. We did that here. But some, the chamber came out against it. The Post and the News editorialized in favor of it once we changed the shooting policy. Uh, the, the state attorney general, you know, issued or said it was wrong or against us, but we stuck with it. Arrington, as mayor, had to fight the personnel board in a lot of ways, not just to get rid of problem officers, but to build a more diverse and representative force and to hire police chief that would help him institute his policies. But under the rules, he had to select from the board's three top choices. In which he had no say, right? That's right. Ultimately, Arrington ended up selecting the board's third choice, Artie Deutsch, a tough-looking, tough-talking New York City police captain, an occasional writer of pulp fiction with a personality the size of the Big Apple. He had written a, some story, and he had an attractive wife and some good-looking kids and all of this. You know, it, very handsome guy. But he got into it, and there was always some controversy. It was one thing after another. But Artie came in and he, he, he said, boss, what do you want, boss? Tell me what it is, boss. And I said, well, Artie, you know, as the FOP, this and that, don't worry about it, boss. I'll take care for you, boss. That was always his line, don't worry about it, boss. And, and most times he did. I mean, sometimes he messed it up. <laughs> yeah, what, 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 <laughs> yes, it was interesting. Yeah, what was the story about him pulling the paraplegic out of the car? To... Yeah, over there, a bunch of them. I don't, you can't remember all the stories, but, uh, you know, we got some snow here in Birmingham, and apparently some guy's in the car driving on a golf course, and supposedly, as the story goes, Artie sees it, and he's driving over there, and he goes there, and he snatches the car, and it turns out the guy's a paraplegic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Deutsch was a story all his own. He was accused of beating up a suspect and of pulling that man through his own front window by the lapels. He became the sworn enemy of the Fraternal Order of Police, though, and worked to push through Arrington's reforms, though he was ultimately charged with others. This would have been 1991 with tampering with jail documents detailing the arrest of the mayor's daughter, Erica. He was sentenced to a year in jail, but the case was appealed and overturned. Before he could be tried on a misdemeanor charge again, he fell down the steps of City Hall and hit his head. He was declared incompetent by a judge and never had to stand trial again. I covered a lot of that story, and I'll never forget it. You know, uh, the FOP considered him to be such an enemy, and they were fighting him every way they could, and they're trying to get rid of him. And when they finally got him in the in a, in a case uh, over there in the Jefferson County Courthouse, you know, they really stuck it to him. Then he ends up you know, down falling down the stairs there. Was that, that legitimate? <laughs> I don't know. The <laughs> FOP swears it was not. <laughs> But, That's one of the biggest questions in, in yeah. Birmingham history. I mean, I guess my ultimate question is this: In spite of all the annex and the personality and Artie Deutsch being Artie Deutsch, did he do what you wanted him to do with the police department? 
Yeah, he helped reform the police department. He really did. Birmingham's first black police chief, Johnny Johnson, once said Birmingham under Deutsch led the nation in implementing a strict shooting policy and that he developed community policing programs that made violence less likely. Change, though, involved more than changing a policy. T.K. Thorne remembers the changes which came in degrees and the uncertainty some of her colleagues felt, both before and after. My memory is after the Benita Carter shooting, that, that policies started to change. And then the, the first round of change that I recall involved, we still could shoot at a fleeing felon, but we had to know that they, that they had committed a felony and we had to know that they were the person that, did, we had to, excuse me, we had to know that a felony had been committed and we had to know that this person was the person who committed the felony. And I remember questioning my sergeant at roll call, what does to know mean? Because it seemed to me that that, that was a pretty high standard, and I wanted to know if it meant you, you had to see it happen and see that person do it, or did it mean someone reliable said that's what happened? It just seemed very iffy to me. And his response was, to know means to know. Now shut up and go to work. Don't know if you would be disciplined for not shooting at a fleeing felon during that time period, but it was certainly an expectation and it was certainly lawful. When the policy in Birmingham started changing, the state law was still in effect. Birmingham issued a second policy that was more specific. It said, like the Supreme Court ruling, a police officer may only shoot a fleeing suspect if they believe their life or someone else's is in imminent danger. Oh, yes, I definitely remember that, that the police officers in Birmingham felt that they were going to be, um, they felt that administration was not going to back them up if they made a decision. And they were fearful that they would hesitate in a situation where they should not hesitate. And they believed that that happened uh, about a year later with the death of E.K. Alley. There was a robbery, and uh, Alley, in my memory again, is that he was working alone. He saw a car that fit the description, and he did what he was supposed to do, which was to stop the car. He got out of the car because you can't sit in the car because you don't know. If they get out of the car, they have an advantage on you. So he got out of the car, and the... The driver of the suspect vehicle got out of the car and had his hands up. And Allie was, had him and was waiting for backup, but the passenger in the suspect car disappeared from sight. And unfortunately, what the passenger did was he laid down, he lay down across the seat so that his head and arms were in the, in the driver's seat side and he stuck his gun out the door on the driver's side and shot Allie. Um, a lot of police officers felt that he hesitated because of all the uproar that had come down in the Benita Carter shooting. I don't know if that was true or not. He had on his vest, but it clipped a artery on his neck, and he died on the scene. It was tragic. It is always tragic when an officer dies, when a person dies. 
That is what all of this is about, sort of. Uche Bean, who runs the Office of Social Justice and Racial Equity for the city of Birmingham now, wants to make it very clear that good police officers, Thorne was one of the good ones, by the way, deserve all the credit they can get. But that doesn't mean every person shot by a cop should be written off as a criminal and every officer held up as a hero. It should not take tragic death for us to value life. Yet again, we have the story of a young black woman girl being killed to wake people up. I think that a lot of times, especially when we're looking historically, um, when it comes to black people, we'll have a triumph and then feel that things will normalize or things will get better and things are going to be okay. But even to this day, we are still seeing the murdering of black people at the hands, unfortunately, of police officers and even in some cases, vigilantes. So I think what it meant to Birmingham at that time, again, a precursor to a Black Lives Matter is like, so what is the quality of black life and what does it mean? And at that point, there's either some people that decide to um, riot or there's some people and, and there's nothing wrong with either version or there's some people that decide that, OK, we have to take a stand. And in this country, it's a democracy. Right. So how do we use these tools that have been given to us, which initially, historically, were not given to us. How do we use these tools to make a change? And I think that's what Birminghamians actually did, as opposed to saying, okay, you know, we're just going to keep dealing with it. So there was a change that happened. So what does Benita Carter's death mean today, more than four decades later? What should it mean? What does it teach us amid the rise of Black Lives Matter and the national awakening regarding police reform? For those answers and more, join us in our final episode. Unjustifiable is a podcast from Reckon Radio. It was written and created by me, John Archibald, and co-hosted by Roy S. Johnson. It was produced and edited by Alexander Ritchie. Additional production by Amy Yerkinen and Martha Oglesby. Our executive producer is John Hammontree. Our original theme music was written and performed by Thad Sajid, Austin Motlow, Danny Ray Wilkerson Jr., and David Marsh. Additional music by Jeremy Smith. Thanks to Cedric Burnside and to Reed Watson and Ben Tanner at Single Lock Records up in the Shoals. Voice acting contributed by Ike Morgan and Jeremy Smith. Special thanks to Jim Baggett at the Birmingham Public Library, to Ramsey Archibald, R.L. Nave, Jonathan Sobolewski, Kelly Scott, Uche Bean, Nathaniel Bagley, Dick Arrington, T.K. Thorne, Richard Mock, Bruce Wright, the City of Birmingham, Brian Burgard of Fatal Encounters, the friends and family of Benita Carter the Birmingham News, Solomon Crenshaw, and all those people who have worked to make justice more equitable.